2,600 deaths a day. I cover national security broadly defined, and I often turn to numbers to help me understand the scale of any given problem. Here are a couple of remarkable statistics about two major stories affecting our world. In 2022, 107,000 Americans died of a drug overdose. And the majority of those deaths were caused by fentanyl, which is now a leading cause of death for Americans between the ages of 18 and 45. Here's another number, 1.2 billion. That's how many climate refugees the Institute for Economics and Peace estimates there could be by 2050. Those numbers are striking, but they can't capture the whole picture. And more important than that, they can't captivate you in the way a story can. A story with characters and stakes, maybe an unexpected twist or two. Certain writers have the ability to take a really big problem like the opioid crisis or climate change and use their reporting and literary talents to turn them into page-turning books that help us to better understand the world. We could talk about climate change and its implications for global migration, or we can visit a village in Alaska that's actually moving its location because of the warming climate. Someone mentioned this tiny town on this island off Alaska that had sort of voted to move because it was getting swallowed up by climate change. That's Elizabeth Colbert, who's written a number of extremely compelling books on climate change. She's figured out how to harness the plight of a single village or a really obscure species of fish to see how deeply and irreversibly we humans are changing the fragile world that we live in. If you go back to the early days, it really starts with one company and one drug. And the company was Purdue Pharma, this Connecticut pharmaceutical company, and the drug was OxyContin. And that's Patrick Radden Keefe, who through dogged investigating, insatiable curiosity, and a talent for finding those novelistic details that draw out character, has taken an all too familiar story, the opioid crisis, and revealed the puppeteers behind the scenes. The result is an indictment of the ways that wealth can shield the powerful from accountability. So today, how do two of America's leading nonfiction writers take on the national security issues that affect all of us and transform them into lasting works that change hearts and minds, and maybe even policies? I'm Peter Bergen. Welcome to In the Room. Patrick Radden Keefe specializes in a variety of reporting called the Write Around, writing about a subject who isn't going to answer your calls, much less sit down with you for an interview. When it comes to national security, a great many subjects fall into this category. His first Write Around was almost comically ambitious. He took on the National Security Agency, which for many years was known as the No Such Agency. There's some hubris there, right? I was in my 20s. <laughs> to taking on the most secretive secret agency imaginable where there wasn't a, a huge literature there. You know, this law student with no journalism background trying to come to Fort Meade and do interviews was not something that they were particularly open to. Keith always knew he wanted to be a writer. I think I figured that out in high school, but... It took me many, many years to engineer that. So I went to college. I went to grad school in the UK for a few years. I studied international relations at Cambridge. 
came back, went to law school at Yale. I went to law school for a variety of reasons. I, I, I liked school. I was good at it. My sense was if I can make this thing last as a kind of a cover story, so it looks as though I have real plans in my life, even though what I'm really doing is just hoping that somebody will accept <laughs> will accept my pitch to write articles to sign up for this dying industry. Keith didn't want to be a reporter just anywhere. He aimed for the pinnacle of long-form nonfiction writing, The New Yorker, which was pretty cheeky considering for many writers a gig there is the culmination of a long career of excellence. And so I was pitching The New Yorker like crazy, and they wouldn't take anything. And September 11th happened. And I had done some graduate work in the UK looking at eavesdropping by intelligence agencies. So suddenly this kind of pretty obscure at the time thing that I had been interested in became much more germane overnight after 9-11. And then eventually what I did was pitched a book. And that was a book called Chatter that came out in 2005. By the time Keefe wrote Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, about the origins of the opioid crisis, he had two more books under his belt and a lot of experience with write-arounds. I've always been very interested in the illegal drug trade. And in 2012, I wrote a cover story for the New York Times Magazine about the Sinaloa drug cartel particularly the business model of the cartel. I was very interested in the idea that you have these cartels that we think of as, you know, these very violent transnational criminal organizations, but they're also multi-billion dollar commodities enterprises. I was interested in the way that they function as business organizations. In 2010, the volume of heroin crossing the U.S. border from Mexico suddenly spiked and nobody could figure out why it was this riddle. Why was there all this heroin suddenly coming? Because a cartel like the Sinaloa cartel is diversified. You know, they moved cocaine and marijuana and methamphetamine and heroin, now fentanyl. The answer turned out to be the opioid crisis, that there was this generation of Americans who actually hadn't started with heroin. They started with FDA-approved, doctor-prescribed, licit opioid pharmaceuticals. The company was Purdue Pharma, this Connecticut pharmaceutical company, and the drug was OxyContin. I got my life back. Now I can enjoy every day that I live. I can really enjoy myself. And before A big part of the way that they did it was with this marketing pitch that, unlike opioids that had come before, where doctors were often reluctant to prescribe them, except in very extreme situations because of a well-founded fear that they could be quite addictive. The marketing pitch for OxyContin was not anymore. The rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. And so that was sort of the, the big lie. We have this powerful opioid, more powerful than anything that's ever been on the market, and it's not addictive. We've figured out a way to hack it. As I delved into this, I learned that that Purdue Pharma was owned by the Sackler family. And that was when the penny dropped for me because I knew the Sackler name because I grew up in Boston. I've lived in New York. I've lived in Washington, D.C. I've lived in London. These are all places where, if you look for it, you could see the Sackler name everywhere on all these cultural and educational and medical elite institutions. 
And I didn't understand how they could own this company that had done these terrible things and not even really be asked difficult questions about it. And so that was the disconnect that I, I was seeking to resolve. You know, one way to read the book is sort of an indictment of the entire billionaire class. I know that wasn't your intent, but the second and third generation of this family and their efforts to sort of distance themselves from where the money came from. Is there a bigger story here, not just about the Sacklers, but in the way in which, say, New York society operates? Yeah, absolutely. I would even go further than that in terms of the larger significance of the story. I mean, I think on the one hand, there's this issue of reputation washing and the way in which institutions that should know better, and I'm thinking specifically here about institutions of higher learning, but this would go for the art museums as well, are, you know, they're so desperate for cash that they are readily enlisted into this project of reputation washing. And and I would say, you know, this is hardly unique to the Sacklers. After my book came out, the photographer Nan Golden took a great interest in this and really campaigned to have the Sackler name taken down. Take down their name. Here's how one media outlet covered those protests. In New York City, protesters took over the Guggenheim Museum Saturday night to call out the museum's relationship with the Sackler family, whose company, Purdue Pharma, produces the prescription painkiller OxyContin. And here's how Keefe, voicing the Empire of Pain audiobook, transports you to the scene on a chilly Saturday afternoon, following Nan Golden into the Met. She was dressed in black from head to toe and wore a long black muffler around her neck and bright red lipstick, her crimson hair flopping down over her eyes. Once she was inside the museum, she made her way to the Sackler wing. She had not come alone. When she reached the hall, with its great wall of banked glass looking out onto the park, she blended into the throng of afternoon museum goers. But she was quietly coordinating with a group of a hundred or so other people who had arrived incognito, just as she had. Suddenly, at 4 p.m., they started shouting, Temple of Greed! Temple of Greed! Temple of Oxy! The Sackler name has now been scrubbed from most of these institutions because they've been publicly shamed. But I do think that there is a sense in which they, you know, I mean, other names remain in place. And I think that if there was a reason that a lot of these institutions, and for instance, Harvard, which still hasn't taken down the Sackler name, some of these institutions are very reluctant to do it. I think that for them, they realize that it, once you start that process, like once you start subjecting these names and these kind of philanthropic gifts to some kind of basic ethical litmus test, it becomes problematic at an institutional level, right? Because there are many other unsavory people uh, who may be giving money now or have given money in the past or potentially give money in the future. But, but I would go beyond that and also say that to me, what the book is about is, is impunity, it's about impunity for the billionaire class. It's about impunity for the super elite. And it's about the way in which when you have fortunes of that magnitude, and this would be true for a family, but also for a business, it can pervert the basic checks and balances of our system. It can pervert 
the uh, protections that American citizens and American consumers have and should expect. And so you see this with what I would characterize as the kind of soft corruption of the FDA, of the Department of Justice, which are supposed to stop people from doing bad things and then create measures of accountability when they go ahead and do the bad things anyway. And really, it's a story in which those two things fail to happen again and again and again and again and again. And when you ask yourself why, the answer is always at root the money, right? It's, it's, not, it's not like a suitcase full of money. It's not a bribe. But it's I happen to know a well-placed attorney who I can hire for top dollar who will come in and intervene with you, Peter, you know, you who are the regulator, you who are the prosecutor, you who are the person who's supposed to be holding me to account. Why is it important for the Sacklers to have their names no longer be on these monuments to art or to science or to medicine? What's the importance of this symbolism? Is it merely symbolism or is it something deeper? I think it's mostly merely symbolism. The book came out more than two years ago now. And I have traveled around the country talking about it pretty much continuously ever since. And any time I talk to a group of more than, I don't know, 30 people, somebody in the room will come up to me afterwards and tell me about how they've lost a loved one. When you're exposed to that kind of loss and the sort of rawness of that, as often as I am... <laughs> you wouldn't want to put too much stock in the idea that the Sackler name is coming down from these fancy institutions and therefore justice has somehow been done. What would justice look like? Well, what would justice look like? You know, there are a lot of people, there was a rally at the DOJ in which a lot of these families who've lost loved ones say they want criminal charges against the Sacklers. With Empire Pain, Kiefer's managed to inextricably link the Sacklers to Oxycontin and the opioid crisis. But he's also quick to say his primary concern when he sits down at his desk to write isn't whether the Sacklers go to prison. It's getting you to want to read about them in the first place. I need to really engage you in every paragraph, on every page. I want you to keep turning the pages. My books are designed to be pleasurable to read. The challenge then becomes, how do you take a fiendishly complex fact pattern and distill that into something that ideally is a page-turner? Keith began with a mountain of documents from various legal cases. And then, after he published a piece in The New Yorker about the Sacklers and word got out that he was writing a book, more and more documents came his way. So somebody had figured out where I live and dropped off in my mailbox, an envelope, and I opened the envelope, and it was it was an index card with a quote from the great Gatsby and a thumb drive. And I was so paranoid for a bunch of reasons, you know, some of which may have been quite sensible, that I didn't want to put that thumb drive in any of my devices. So I ended up buying a Chromebook, like a burner Chromebook, just in order to access the thumb drive, I got it open and there were thousands of pages of internal files and legal files associated with, this is somebody who'd been associated with Purdue in a litigation capacity had dropped this stuff in my house 
And then I wanted to print the stuff out. I also didn't want to connect to my printer because I was still sort of worried that some pernicious you know, virus or malware would, would get on it. So then I had to buy a, a burner printer. It was that for two years. There's something about documents. Documents, of course, are partial in some ways, but uh, documents don't quite lie in the same way that uh, <laughs> human beings do. Yeah, it's true. I think there's two senses in which that's true. One is just kind of purely in terms of time, that if you're, if you're coming along, you know, writing a biography of bin Laden after he's dead, your aperture is, is pretty wide. You're sort of looking at the whole thing. And, and one of the wonderful things for me about documents is how contemporaneous they are, the way in which they're sort of, they're only, they're not, you know, they have no idea where the story is going to go. Well, that's a brilliant way of putting it. They're not able to revise in the way that people would in retrospect. What's your advice to writers who are looking to write narrative nonfiction that people actually want to read? I don't know that there's a real secret to it. One of the biggest things that I learned slowly along the way was in whatever line of work you're in, you know, if you're called upon to write, to write memos, to write emails, to write speeches, I think there's a weird sense in which it's like we have a, a reader brain and a writer brain. And when you're reading, you're one kind of person, you're having a certain kind of experience. And then when people sit down to write, they completely forget about that other person, the part of them that's a reader. And so in some ways, the single most important thing that I, the advice I would give a young, a young person and something that I feel like I learned probably too late is to have those two parts of me just be more in conversation. So when I'm reading a book or I'm reading an article, to just be attentive to what pulls me in. There's nothing I love more than that kind of, I think of it as the undertow, the undertow that you feel when you feel like somebody's just pulling you into a story. And this could be for, this could be a newspaper article. It could be an email. Being attentive to what works, what excites you in a piece of writing. And then by contrast, what repels you? I'm forever having this experience when I'm, I'll be lying in bed, you know, reading a novel and I find myself rereading the same paragraph for the fourth time. And it's a quicksand. I can't get through it. The pages are not turning. So what gets you to turn the pages in Keefe's books? I have to have characters that I can build a narrative around. That's just what I do. Take a really telling detail like this one about Richard Sackler, the mastermind behind Oxycontin. Here's Keefe voicing that section in Empire of Pain. He had a bulldog, which he often brought with him. The dog was named Unk, after the stock market abbreviation for Unchanged, which indicates that a company's share price ended the trading day at the same level where it started. Unk had a tendency to shit in the hallways, and Richard had a tendency to not pick it up. So visitors to the ninth floor learned to weave around the occasional deposit left by the dog on the royal purple carpet. And those are the kinds of details that uh, you spend years interviewing people and sort of eking things out, and occasionally you find these little uh, novelistic dis distillations of someone's whole personality, uh, that he brings his dog to work and <laughs> <laughs> it shits on the, the royal purple carpet and he just keeps moving, confident in the knowledge that somebody else will sweep in behind him. The Sacklers weren't all that concerned about picking up dog crap in their own office. 
And they also weren't particularly concerned about what they put in their emails. And that became a treasure trove for Keith later when he used some of those emails to reconstruct the infighting that was going on inside the Sackler family. They're constantly bad-mouthing each other, um, which is fun. So that was easy. And then I interviewed a lot of people who were close to them. So everyone from Richard Sackler's college roommate to the yoga instructor who went on vacation with Mortimer Sackler Jr. and his family to the Turks and Caicos, to doormen, to administrative assistants, to housekeepers, lots of people who had a kind of quite intimate vantage point. The Sacklers were not particularly subtle about all these kind of petty grievances and rivalries. I mean, it's hilarious. I had so much good stuff. I had to, I literally had to leave stuff out of the book because it just, at a certain point, it's like too much of a good thing. I'm interested in the lies that people tell themselves and each other and the ways in which people use charisma to to break the rules or bend the rules. I'm interested in the lines between what is licit and illicit and how permeable those lines are, the ways in which, I mean, just to give you an example from today, right, it's like Chapo Guzman is in prison for the rest of his life in a supermax, and the Sacklers are going to have to console themselves with only $6 billion and some social opprobrium. The sheer scale of the opioid crisis is big in the United States, but elsewhere around the world, it barely registers. But climate change and the other impacts of widespread industrialization are remaking the world for pretty much everybody. Elizabeth Colbert uses small-scale examples, zooming in on the spectacular details of the natural world to tell the larger climate story. She covered New York politics before switching to the climate beat. I was looking for a story that had a lot of significance that wasn't changing all the time. Climate change is already very much on my radar and a lot of people's radar. You might remember a vice president by the name of Al Gore. He was one of the first voices sounding an alarm about human-caused global warming. I only wish that the skeptics could change the facts, <laughs> but they can't. The underlying facts... Uh, are real and the accumulation of greenhouse gases worldwide continues. I mean, it was, it was a very big issue, although not one that was particularly well understood or being particularly well reported at that point. And I came across Richard Alley's book, The Two Mile Time Machine, which is about ice coring operations in Greenland. And I, one of the great things about being a reporter is you can call the author up. So I called up Richard. And I said, you know, I really want to go with you to Greenland. It seemed really fascinating. And the ice coring operation that he was working on had been completed, but he put me in touch with these Danes who were drilling another core. And I did go up that summer to the top of the Greenland ice sheet with the Danes. And it was the Danes who told me, whatever you hear, the physics of climate change are irrefutable, and this is coming at us, and it's super important. And that is really what set me on this path. That piece that I wrote about ice cores ended up being about the climate of the past, not really about the climate of the future. It's what we learned about the climate of the past, though that has important implications for the climate of the future. And then I set about trying to write about climate change. It took me a really quite a long time to find a story, which I finally found when someone mentioned this tiny 
town on this island off Alaska that had sort of voted to move because it was getting swallowed up by climate change. That story took Colbert and Aridas to Shishmaref, a tiny Inupiat village. We learn with Colbert about the town's seal hunts, its permafrost, and its residents, who take Colbert under their wing, supplying her with a rain suit and inviting her to come back. Colbert has been covering climate change ever since, and this approach has become one of the features of her work. Taking people to places that they are unlikely to go themselves is key to a certain form of storytelling, which, you know, has an honestly an adventure component to it, even as the subject matter that I personally am writing about could be described as sort of the opposite of swashbuckling adventures into realms that you don't necessarily want to go. Even a medium amount of time on climate change will tell you once you start learning about it and really absorb the full impact of what it means for just about everything and everybody on planet Earth, it's kind of hard to go back to reporting on anything else. Because it seems so trivial? Yeah. I mean, there are many, many major issues in the world. I do not want to trivialize them at all, but climate change will affect all of them, absolutely all of them. Colbert's project is revealing what we've already lost and what we will lose as we embark on a new epoch that some scientists are calling the Anthropocene. But defining a new geological epoch, of which there have only been a few in the Earth's 4.6 billion year history, is not something scientists take lightly. And every year, geologists gather to weigh the evidence. But Colbert says the evidence that a new epoch defined by geological changes that will be inscribed in the rocks and evident for millions of years is already pretty compelling. Well, one thing is we're adding a lot of carbon to the air. That carbon will be incorporated into certain deposits. And so we'll be able to tell millions of years from now that something happened where a lot of carbon got released into the air. So that's just one indicator. We are creating a very, very curious fossil record of all of our plastic junk, for example, that will also fossilize and be an, a marker of something very weird having happened at this moment. We are moving species around the world. That will definitely be in the fossil record, right? We move rats all around the world, including to places that are uninhabited by people. That will show up. Some of their bones will be fossilized. We will see an extinction event. We will see that many species dropped out of the fossil record. So the list of ways that we're changing the fossil record is pretty long and pretty compelling. Now, the argument against naming the Anthropocene now, one argument is, well, our impacts are only going to get greater and greater as time goes on. So, you know, no hurry. We can wait. We can rename this later on. Another question is how long we're going to be around to affect these changes. If we manage to do ourselves in, how long will these changes last? But I, I think it's very convincing that we have already changed the fossil record. I don't think there's really much doubt about that. It's her ability to explain complex scientific ideas in accessible language that makes Colbert's writing so effective. I really try to write in a way that 
acknowledges the existence of much complicated math in the world. You know, you're not going to get a climate model without a tremendous amount of complicated math. But were you, as a reader, you, you don't have to understand that math. I don't understand that math. I'm not asking you to understand that math. I'm making a nod in the direction. This is what, you know, you would find if you did all that math, but you certainly don't have to be able to follow all the steps of that math. As I say, I can't. A big subject is the changing pH levels of the ocean, which uh, was something I was vaguely aware of. But one of the places that you go to is Australia's Great Barrier Reef, which is just basically disappearing. How big is it? Why is it a big deal? Is there anything that can be done? Well, you know, this is one of the great tragedies of our time. The Great Barrier Reef is basically the size of Italy. It's not really one reef. It's a long string of of thousands of reefs that sort of is draped along the east coast of Australia. It's the world's largest reef or collection of reefs by far. It's a truly astonishing place or places. I've been to one tiny corner of it. And what's happening is that corals are pretty sensitive to water temperatures. And as water temperatures rise, you get this phenomenon that's called coral bleaching. And that is just happening more and more frequently with very warm water temperatures. And so you're getting pretty major mortality on the reef, and it's just it's just shrinking or becoming simpler. So certain kinds of corals that can't survive are not surviving, and certain kinds that can maybe uh, will take over. But the extraordinary complexity and diversity of the reef uh, will disappear. And, you know, people are trying to come up with all sorts of strategies for trying to protect some of the reef or regrow some of the reef. But I think that the bottom line is if water temperatures continue to increase, and at the same time, the chemistry of the oceans is also changing in ways that coral reefs don't like. The prognosis for reefs is pretty grim, and that has extraordinary consequences that we're just beginning to sort of understand. But a lot, a lot of marine life depends on coral reefs, and a lot of people depend on coral reefs. Well, I was surprised. I think in your book, you say that the low-end estimate for the number of species dependent on reefs is like a million. The range of life that you can see, you know, in one square yard on the reef is just extraordinary, even, you know, sort of with a naked eye. And then when you crack open a piece of reef, I mean, many studies have been done like this, you see what's burrowed into it, what's eating away at it, tiny little creatures. So, you know, a million species is, as you say, the low-end estimate. They're not all sort of macro species. They're not all fish. Some of them are tiny little guys, tiny little shrimp or whatever, but they are all dependent uh, on a reef, and the tiny little guys are the food for the bigger guys. So, you know, the whole ecosystem starts to unravel. The Great Barrier Reef is one of a number of examples in Colbert's most recent book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, which shows the disastrous effects of human meddling in the natural world. Take another example, the mighty Mississippi River, which has been redirected by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers over the course of many decades to protect the city of New Orleans from floods. When the river followed its original path, it periodically flooded, 
and deposited its sediment a buildup of clay, sand, and silt. My wife is from Louisiana, and I'd been traveling there for a decade and a half. Until I read Under a White Sky, I didn't fully understand why so much of southern Louisiana is disappearing so fast. Because the Mississippi no longer floods naturally, it no longer is building up the sediments that composed much of southern Louisiana. To quote Colbert, Thanks to the intervention of engineers, there has been no spillover and hence no land building. The future of southern Louisiana has instead washed out to sea. By the end of her book, Colbert has assembled a catalogue of examples that show just how inept we humans can be. When we try to solve one environmental problem, we often create new, more intractable problems. Finally, Colbert examines a radical option that's on the table right now, by which we might intervene in the environment yet again, this time in the name of fighting climate change. The untested scientific field of solar geoengineering. Solar geoengineering is basically mimicking volcanoes. So when you get a major volcanic eruption, for example, Mount Pinatubo in 1991, you get a tremendous amount of sulfur dioxide that gets pushed all the way up into the stratosphere, and it forms these reflective droplets that sort of form this haze, this global haze that gets spread around the world on these stratospheric winds, and that creates these very beautiful sunsets that you get after big volcanic eruptions, and it also has a a cooling effect temporarily because a certain amount of sunlight is bouncing off of those little reflective droplets back out towards space before it even hits the Earth. So you're getting less direct sunlight hitting the Earth. And after about a year or two, those little droplets fall out of the stratosphere and the effect wanes or you know disappears. But the idea behind solar geoengineering is, well, we could do that ourselves. We could do sort of fake volcanoes. We could pour something into the stratosphere. It could be sulfur. It could be some other compound that's very reflective. And we would then be reducing the amount of direct sunlight that hits the Earth, and we could, in that way, have a cooling effect to balance out potentially at least some of the warming effect that we're having. Do you think solar geoengineering might work in the future in a way that actually would really reduce global temperatures? And are there kind of unexpected or unanticipated problems with this approach that would come back and haunt us down the line? These are all questions that are are hard to answer at this point. There's been a lot of modeling work done with computer simulations that, you know, do suggest that you could have a cooling effect. And also a lot of these studies suggest that the side effects of doing that would be less bad than the side effects of not doing it. Now, those are just computer simulations. There's been really virtually no actual experimental work in this field because it's so controversial. And I think, honestly, rightly so, that it's very controversial. It would be consciously, you know, right now we're sort of inadvertently re-engineering the atmosphere and it's having, you know, terrible consequences. This would be quite consciously re-engineering the the atmosphere and it it would almost certainly affect different parts of the world differently. So after you have a major 
volcanic eruption, you, you get these regionally different weather patterns. So you can see that even if potentially the global effect, net global effect, might be positive, the negative effect for certain parts of the world could be very, very serious. And you can see the possibilities for global conflict over this. And there are simply also a lot of, you know, there are the known unknowns and there are the unknown unknowns. Messing with the stratosphere is something that, you know, one should not do lightly. Let's just put it that way. Colbert covers a pretty dark subject, but if we just resign ourselves to the direction in which things are headed, we don't stand a chance of improving our prospects as a species. I wondered how she balances those competing forces, portraying the bleak reality without extinguishing a reader's hope. I think people who work in the climate space are often asked that. It's just interesting to me because if you're reporting on the war in Ukraine or whatever, you wouldn't be asked, like, what's the hopefulness here? But I guess I come from a kind of an old school journalistic tradition where I say my job is to report the facts. It's not to decide how you're going to interpret them or what you're going to feel when you read them. So I do try to hue to that. Now, I certainly do understand there's a sense of like, why should people read about climate change if it's just all doom and gloom? And will they bother to read what I write if they just feel that it's all doom and gloom? And that is both a practical and an ethical position. I don't want to become complicit in the problem, if that makes sense, by just discouraging people from doing anything. On the other hand, the facts are what the facts are. And I think that if there's one point that I guess I would want to make, it is that we're not going to deal with this problem by denying the scale of the problem. We have to take measures that are commensurate with the scale of the problem and just things that make us feel hopeful but don't really have any impact, that's just not going to do it. How do you make people care? Well, I think people do actually care about other species. Lots of us have pets of various sorts. People are bird watchers and people are plant lovers and people are very interested in other species, even if they are simultaneously doing things that are very destructive to other species. People care about their kids. I think that's pretty universal. What we are doing right now to the planet will have repercussions that will last for all intents and purposes forever. We are really narrowing down the range of choices that our kids will have. We are guaranteeing them some very, very, very hard times. I think that people care about themselves. <laughs> we are getting to the point where millions and millions of people this summer walked out of their houses to see that the sky was brown or orange because of wildfire smoke that was directly related to climate change. And people were breathing in very dangerous air. The air quality in many parts of the country, including where I live, for parts of the summer was really bad owing to that wildfire smoke. So we care about our own health. So there are all sorts of ways and avenues into getting people to care. Do you have frustration about the denialism around climate change and other forms of change that exist, or do you just sort of tune it out? Oh, you know, frustration is definitely too weak a word. I mean, desperation. From a journalistic perspective, you could say it's it's fascinating. From a human perspective, it's 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 extremely upsetting. How do you deal with the upset? <laughs> I. Uh, 
I guess I channel it into journalism. <laughs> Seems like a pretty good coping mechanism to me. We humans are programmed for story. The longest-running primetime series on American TV is 60 Minutes, which debuted more than half a century ago. And there's a pretty simple reason for that. No matter how serious the topics are on 60 Minutes, Don Hewitt, the executive producer, had a mantra, tell me a story. Hundreds of worthy white papers on climate change and the opioid crisis will gather dust, while Colbert's and Keith's books will still be read many years from now because they understand that simple imperative. Tell me a story. To me, narrative is, is everything. I don't even know how conscious it is, but I grew up in a family of storytellers, and particularly on my father's side, it's a big Irish-American family, and we'd get together for Thanksgiving or Easter, and then at a certain point, there'd be you know 10 or 12 people around a table, and... There's a particular uncle who's retelling a story that we've all heard a hundred times, but but there's a kind of satisfaction in the retelling. There's a sort of ritual aspect of it, a, a kind of oral tradition. Anytime I'm talking to an audience, and it can be talking to the people listening to this podcast or giving a talk or writing a story or having a conversation with my wife and kids around the dinner table, I'm always leaning into the narrative features of whatever it is that we're talking about, because to me, those are <laughs> those are the most compelling. And I don't know if that's just our vanity as people, but I do think that a narrative about people remains, I think, a, a pretty unparalleled delivery device for complex information. If you want to know more about the issues and stories that we discuss in this episode, we recommend Elizabeth Colbert's Under a White Sky and The Sixth Extinction, along with Patrick Redden Keefe's Empire of Pain and Say Nothing. You can find all of those titles on Audible. In the Room with Peter Bergen is an Audible original, produced by Audible Studios and Fresh Produce Media. This episode was produced by Laura Tillman, with help from Luke Cregan. Our executive producer is Alison Craiglow. Katie McMurrin is our technical director. Our staff also includes Alexandra Salomon, Eric German, Holly DeMuth, Sandy Malera, and J.P. Swenson. Theme music is by Joel Picard. Our executive producers for Fresh Produce Media are Colin Moore, Jason Ross, and Joe Killian. Our head of development is Julian Ambler. Our head of production is Eleanor Bavietz. Eliza Lambert is our supervising producer. Maureen Trainer is our head of operations. Our production manager is Hermenio Ochoa. Our production coordinator is Henry Koch. And our delivery coordinator is Anna Paula Martinez. Audible's chief content officer is Rachel Giazza. Head of content acquisition and development and partnerships, Pat Shah. Special thanks to Marlon Calby, Alison Weber, and Vanessa Harris. Copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC.